Genesis chapter 29. Before we get there, I want to begin this morning's study with just a very simple question. What is love? Have you ever heard the name Helen Fisher? If you haven't, Helen Fisher, she's had two TED Talks. She's a biological anthropologist, a human behavioral researcher. She is considered to be the foremost scholar in the love research community. Helen is a member of the Center for Human Evolutionary Studies at Rutgers University. She was hired by Match.com to create Chemistry.com, which uses her research to create both a hormone-based and personality-based matching system. In her acclaimed book, Why We Love, The Nature and Chemistry of Romantic Love, Ms. Fisher postulates that what we consider to be love is really nothing more than the evolution of three basic systems within the human brain central for mating and reproduction. This is her thesis, that love exists in three stages. First, there is stage one, which she calls lust. It's a sex drive. According to Helen, the biological interactions that take place between two people via physical or emotional connections, initiate an increased release of two hormones, testosterone and estrogen, which are essential to the sex drive within men and women, which then leads to stage two. She calls stage two attraction or romantic love. You see, to facilitate this biological drive for sex, three neurotransmitters are active, released within the brain. First, since increases in testosterone and estrogen activate a stress response, which increases blood flow, this releases both adrenaline and cortisol. This is why when you're around a significant interest, your heart begins to flutter. You begin to sweat. Your palms get cold. In a sense, these biological interactions start to lead a connection. It starts revving up the engine. Now, at that point, serotonin is released in the brain, which not only creates a love feeling, you know, when you're, when you're overcome with the butterflies and the tinglies, and you're like, oh, wow, and your eyes flutter. That love feeling, well, it's serotonin being released to, to, in the brain, and that fosters a very deep, even obsessive longing to be around the person you're hoping to get lucky with. When sexual or physical stimulation finally does occur, the body proceeds to flood the brain with dopamine, which stimulates a euphoric rush within a person's pleasure sensors. Because this takes place in an area of your brain, the limbic system, which is the desire and reward center, the body craves repeated behavior. And that leads to stage three, which Helen refers to as attachment, or a deep feeling of union and companionship. Because evolutionary theory postulates that what we perceive as love exists for the sole purpose of procreation and therefore the raising of offspring, following sexual interactions, oxytocin, also known as the cuddling hormone, is released, which fosters a bond. You want to cuddle. There's a connection with the individual. It's not just sex and done, it's sex and let's connect. 
In addition, vasopressin is released in the brain, which increases a desire to then keep one's partner from other suitors and therefore increases devotion. Now, I'm not going to debate this morning all of the flaws within Helen's theory. I'm not going to debate the biology here. I think that there's some truth to what she's explaining. But I do see, for the record, one huge, gigantic flaw in her argument. Aside from the fact that marital love exists to yield oneness within gender diversity, with procreation being a secondary aim, understand, God created human beings to be sexual, and he did so not just so you would have babies. He, he did all of this with all of these chemicals releasing so that you would have fun with your spouse. Having kids, having babies, hey, that's a great, well, sometimes a great secondary reaction, secondary response. But really, God made you sexual, created sex for oneness. So you and your spouse would connect and love each other and grow to be one body, one person. Procreation, raising offspring, all of those things are secondary. But that being said, the big problem I have with her theory is that the Bible presents love as being way more than biological responses or feelings based in one's physiological reactions. And instead, the Bible presents love as being a decision of one's will. And she does not take that into account at all. Sadly, relegating love to being nothing more than hormone or neurochemical reactions based upon physical and personality compatibilities aimed solely at procreation of one's genetic makeup. Well, all of that explains why, A, so many marriages fail today, and secondly, why the sexual revolution within Western culture over the last 60 or so years looks a lot more like Planet of the Apes. So, back to the question. What is love? In this morning's text, as a matter of fact, the entire chapter, we're going to witness one of the most bizarre and unlikely love stories, I think, in the, in the entire Bible. And in looking at this story, in, in examining the details, diving into the minutia, I want you to understand right from the beginning, what we'll see is that real, genuine, lasting love does not exist as an emotion yielding reactions, but is instead a willful action yielding emotions. Let me repeat that. It's not an emotion yielding reactions, but is instead a willful action yielding emotion. Verse 1, chapter 29. Let's just dive in. So Jacob went on his way and came to the land of the people of the east, specifically Haran. And he looked and he saw a well in the field, and behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they, wanted, they watered the flocks. A large stone was on the well's mouth. Now all the flocks would be gathered there. And they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, put the stone back in its place on the well. Now that detail will become important in just a moment. So Jacob said to them, My brethren, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. 
Then he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. These chaps are not exactly conversational. So Jacob said to them, is he well? And they said, he is well. And look, his daughter Rachel is coming with, with the sheep. Then Jacob said, look, this is bizarre. Like it's still high day. It's not time to water cattle. It's not time for them to be gathered together, to water the sheep, to go to feed them. But they said, we cannot until the flocks are gathered together. They have rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. Now, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Just pause for a minute. Jacob has left his home. He's traveled 500 miles. He's finally reached the outskirts of Haran when we're told he sees a well in the field. This well has a large contingency of people that are watering their flocks. Not only does this seem to be a smart place, smart starting point for Jacob's quest to find Laban, his uncle, but I can even imagine hearing the story of how Rebecca was ultimately found by Eleazar, right, at a well of water to be brought back to his father Isaac. Jacob gets to Haran thinking of a good starting point. He remembers the story. He's like, well, the well worked well once. Let me start there. This all makes sense. Well, it came to pass, verse 10, that when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his, brother's, his mother's brother, his uncle, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative, that he was Rebekah's son. So she ran and told her father. Now, since it was customary that all the herdsmen arrived to water their flocks at once on account of her tardiness, Rachel finds herself in a tight spot. She's late to the action. All the herdsmen were supposed to bring the flocks to the well, the well seemingly protected by a big stone, needing the collective effort to move the stone so everyone could water at once. We're already told They've watered, they rolled the stone back. Now Rachel shows up. So she's got a problem. She's in a tight spot. By the time she arrives, the well's been recovered. And yet, in an incredible twist, Rachel's tardiness provides Jacob the perfect opportunity. The perfect chance, you know, to show off his guns, to make a lasting impression, I imagine. Rachel, she knows she's running behind schedule. I'm sure she's a bit frantic. She's getting close. She sees already people are dispersing, that the, that the well is shut down for the day. She's flustered by the situation. What am I going to do? However, to her surprise, this strange man comes to her rescue. Seemingly out of nowhere, Jacob steps up. I imagine he takes off his shirt, does a few stretches, 
flexes his muscles just a little bit. He walks over. Honey, I got this. And he proceeds to roll this stone all by his lonesome, right? Well, seeing that Rachel is clearly impressed, giving him, you know, the googly eyes, Jacob decides to go in for the kill. There's no conversation happening here, right? Dude flexes, muscles up, moves the stone, looks over. Rachel's blushing. And Jacob comes up. And what does he do? He kisses her. Wow. I can see the scene. And it's like all those stupid romantic novels at CVS that you walk by, that your wife reads on family vacation, the cover, the embrace, right? This kiss. And boom, there's a connection. The camera pans. 360. They're holding the embrace. Bada bing, bada boom. What a moment. Jacob is overcome with obvious emotion. Now, sadly, instead of staying in the moment, instead of playing it cool, Jacob decides to just make things a little awkward. Because what does he do? After this magical embrace, so imagine you're there. They embrace, there's this kiss, 360 panorama, it's awesome. What does Jacob do when they, they, when they, when they separate? We're told he lifts his voice and starts crying. <laughs> like he starts to weep. Now once again, I imagine Rachel, as any woman, was in this moment a little wigged out, a little freaked by Jacob's reaction to this kiss, right? I can imagine she's thinking, oh no, did I fail to brush my teeth? I knew I should have popped the mint first. Is he crying because of my bad breath? Was, am I that bad of a kisser? Well, her fears are brought back when Jacob proceeds to explain who he is, why he's come to town, why he's overcome with emotion, and then Rachel does something that would freak me out. She runs off to tell her father. Now, typically, that would not have been a good development. Don't forget what's happened. Jacob, an older fella, has just planted an unsolicited kiss on a younger woman, then starts crying about it. And what does she do? She runs to tell dad. bro. And yet, as we'll see, that this ends up being a good development. No doubt, I'm sure, Rachel had also heard the stories of her aunt, Rebecca, had heard the stories of a, of a mystery messenger who came, of Abraham, of this man, Isaac, that, he, that she had heard the love story. And here she is. She finds out that Jacob is Rachel's son and, and uh, Rebecca's son. And she's just giddy. She's pumped up. She rushes back to tell her father. Well, it came to pass, verse 13. When Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he runs to meet Jacob, embraces him, and kisses him. I don't know what that's all about. You can figure that out later. Why he comes and kisses him. Well, he brings him to his house. So Jacob tells Laban everything that's happened. Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and 
my flesh. So Jacob stayed with him for a month. Now, as we discussed last Sunday, Jacob had been sent away under very difficult circumstances. Jacob was fleeing his brother Esau, who was bent on killing him. Why? Because Jacob had stolen the birthright by tricking his blind father. Then, on the way to Haran, Jacob makes this journey, hoping to track down Rebekah's brother Laban. God met him on the way. We looked at this last Sunday. He has this dream. God gives him these incredible promises. Now Jacob, he's arrived at Haran. He's got no idea where he's going. He's got no idea what any of these people look like. He's got no idea if they're still in Haran. He's just kind of flying by the seat of his pants, or there's a God involved, right? He gets to the well, and boom, right from the beginning, he connects with Laban, the very man that he's looking for. And the cherry on top is that his cousin, Rachel, is a babe. Now, it's reasonable to assume that Jacob anticipated his stay with Laban would only last a week or two. He would await word from Rebekah that it was safe to return home. Don't don't forget, that's what Rebekah had told Jacob initially. Go for a little while. Let's just let this cool off. Let this blow over. Your brother will calm down. Then we'll send you'll come back. So he's thinking, hey, this will be a few days, a week at the most. And yet, in a twist, a few days turn into a week. A few weeks turn into a month. Still no word from either Isaac or Rebekah that he can return. And it's at this point that Jacob and Laban each come to the same conclusion. That this day might end up lasting a bit longer than anyone anticipated. So verse 15, Laban says to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? You see, Jacob wasn't a deadbeat. He's chipping in around the house. He's carrying some weight. He's not freeloading. Hey, he goes out in the fields and he goes to work. Gives him some extra time, right, alone with Rachel. He's not freeloading, so he's working. So Laban's like, you're my relative. Should you serve here for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now Jacob loved Rachel. So he said to Laban, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, is it better that I give her to you than I should give her to another man? Stay with me. So they enter this agreement. Now realizing Jacob's temporary visit might turn into a permanent stay. Seeing Jacob's chipping in around the house free of charge, Laban does the honorable thing. He offers Jacob a job. He proposes a name your price dynamic. Well, we're told because Jacob loves Rachel, but he doesn't exactly have the money to pay the dowry so that he could marry her. Old Casanova, he proposes seven years of free labor for the right to marry his love, Rachel. Now, before we move on, verse 17 provides an interesting detail, very relevant to what's about to take place, we're told very clearly that while Rachel the younger was, quote, beautiful 
of form and appearance. I mean, Rachel was a cover girl. She was a 10. We're told here that the older of Laban's two daughters, Leah, that her eyes were delicate. Now, the idea behind this phrase, Leah's eyes were delicate, especially in the sense that it's placed in context with Rachel's obvious beauty, isn't that Leah had poor eyesight. What this means in the Hebrew language is that Leah was actually a cause for sore eyes. Basically, Leah, while Rachel was a babe, Leah not so much. She was light on the eyes, a swamp dolphin. She was a 50-footer, a brown paper bagger, a butterface. Leah is what you would call a two o'clock beauty queen. You might say she was eye broccoli, grizzled chicken, a jack pine savage. Leah had a face only a mother could love. So, verse 20. I got to throw things like this in just to make sure you're with me, right? Make sure you're listening. I, I had like 30 more. That, that's what I had whittled it down to. Verse 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. Wow, that's a statement, isn't it? These seven years that Jacob is working for Laban free of charge seem like only a few days. Why? Because of his love. On a side note, to all my single ladies, I want you to know how you can tell if a man genuinely loves you or is simply lusting after you. As it pertains to sex, only true love is willing to wait for marriage. If your man is trying to get in your pants, if he's pressuring you to make concessions, if he's so horny he can't respect your boundaries, if he isn't willing to be patient and to wait even seven years, then girlfriend, he doesn't love you and is instead more interested in what he can get from you. Lust. Lust is selfish, but love is selfless. Love prefers the other, where it's lust that craves what it wants. Well, verse 21, Jacob said to Laban, seven years are up, give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled that I may go into her. It's a fancy way of saying it's time to get it on. And Laban gathered together all of the men of the place. He made a feast. This is the wedding. And it came to pass in the evening that Laban, oh, Laban, he takes Leah, his daughter. Now, this is Middle Eastern culture. There's veils, there's robes, there's covering. It gets dark. He takes his daughter Leah, and he brings her to Jacob. And Jacob goes in to her. And Laban gave his maid Zilpah 
to his daughter Leah's maid. That's really not relevant until later. So it came to pass in the morning that behold, it was Leah. There's a lot of emotion happening in those few words. And Jacob says to Laban, what is this you have done to me? (laughs) Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, it must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week, and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve with me still another seven years. Now, the irony, right? The irony that Jacob, old heel catcher, ends up getting tricked by Laban in almost the identical way that Jacob had swindled his father Isaac. What comes around goes around. Under Laban's direction, Leah, on the wedding day, veils herself. Rachel gets buried in a broom closet. Leah veils, pretends to be Rachel. Jacob marries her gets hammered, consummates the relationship, only to then discover the ruse the next morning when he awakens and rolls over, hoping to see the beauty he's married, only to find the beast. What just happened? I really, last night was a bit fuzzy. Um, and he runs to Laban. He's like, yo, dude, like what's happened? Now you can rightly understand Jacob's obvious outrage, right? I mean, this was a dirty, unfair maneuver, especially when you take into account that Jacob has just worked for seven years for free to marry Rachel. And yet, d- did you notice Laban's justification for why he gave Jacob Leah instead. Look at verse 26 again. Laban tells Jacob that because it's illegal for a father to marry off the younger daughter before the firstborn, hey, he's just, you know, obeying the laws of the land. Come on, Jacob, you should have known the rules. Like he says, look at it. It must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. In a sense, what is Laban telling Jacob? It's like he's saying this. Listen, bro, in our country, unlike where you come from, we actually have respect for the firstborn. Dun, dun, dun. Like you want to talk about the burn. What is he just, he just, undercut his brother, right? The firstborn. He tricked his father. Now he gets tricked and is married to the firstborn. While Laban's scheme was given a measure of justification by the legal system of Haran, his proposed solution to Jacob does reveal his true underlying intention, right? He tells Jacob, basically, listen, man, I'm sorry this is how it worked out. It's the rules, it's the law. You know, I can't break the law. But you know what? I know you do love Rachel, so this is what I'll do. I'll be fair. I'm a good guy. So this is what's going to happen. This is what we're going to do. If you just work another seven years, I'll let you also marry Rachel. 
Like it'll be a two for 14 type of deal. You know what I mean? Now, at least the situation is that unlike the first go around, you know, you got to work the seven to get the bride, realizing, you know, I can only push him so far. I'll just let you go ahead and marry Rachel now, but you're going to have to retroactively work off her dowry as well. So what do we read? Verse 28, Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. So Laban gave him his daughter Rachel as wife also. Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel. Also not very important, but that'll play out next, next Sunday. Then Jacob went into Rachel. He loved Rachel. We're told, though, he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban another seven years. You want to talk about just a messed up situation. Like, this is the original sister wives. Literal sister wives. One he loves, and one he doesn't. One is more beautiful, and the other is, well, you just wouldn't use beauty to describe her. She's homely. Both are in now the same home. Dysfunction all around. Now, the question that begs our consideration. Few people will address this, but I think we need to. Should Jacob have married Rachel when he was already legally married to Leah? I think that question demands our consideration. Like in a sense, was it okay for Jacob to marry both of these sisters considering Laban's deception and the fact that Jacob had been innocent in the matter? Now, though we can all understand, Leah was not the woman Jacob loved. Leah was not the woman he intended or even thought he was marrying. This morning, I want to tell you, he made a grave mistake when he ends up marrying Rachel as well. For starters, polygamy was never God's intended design for marriage. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5, Jesus was clear, quote, that God made them at the beginning male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, singular. And the two, the man and the wife, shall become one flesh. That's God's design. Anything for any reason other than that is not God's design. Additionally, in Matthew 6, 24, Jesus appears to even go on the record by pointing out the fundamental problem with polygamy. He says, quote, no man can serve two masters. That was a joke. Kind of go with me. Whatever. Well, while polygamy, that fact alone would be more than enough reason for Jacob to not marry Rachel please consider another aspect of this story that's often overlooked. Which of these two women did the Lord want Jacob to marry? Like, have you noticed what is weirdly absent from the entire narrative? There is no mention of Jacob praying, no mention of him consulting with the Lord about marrying Rachel before he got swindled or even after. Ironically, 
God is eerily absent from every aspect of this story. No mention of him whatsoever. You see, I'm convinced that while Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, it had been God's plan all along that Jacob marry Leah instead. Yes, Laban wasn't seeking the Lord either. His deceit was wrong. However, I'm convinced the providential God ends up using this situation to ensure that Jacob marries the right woman. But tragically, instead of trusting God, instead of adjusting to a new life with Leah, Jacob impulsively marries Rachel and therefore creates a toxic, dysfunctional home life. Let's continue on. We're going to get a glimpse into this dysfunction. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. That's just a statement of fact. It doesn't imply that she was barren for any type of divine judgment or reason. It's just a statement. So Leah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Reuben. For she said, The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Then she conceived again, bore a second son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. She conceived again, bore a third son, and said, This time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, now I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called the fourth son Judah and she stopped bearing. How brutal, how brutal really, that this entire situation must have been for Leah. She knows it's out in the open. It's not hidden at all that she's unloved by her husband. She's unloved. There was no hiding that her younger sister was preferred. That Jacob only married Leah because he had been tricked. And and note, because in a patriarchal system, children had to obey uh, the instructions of their parents, specifically their father. Leah and Rachel, I, I believe, are innocent parties in Laban's deceit. It was his fault and his fault alone. I don't think it was, it was Leah's idea. I don't think, I mean, they both had to obey their father. See, Leah here is in a relationship with a man who not only failed to show her affection, but was openly in love and passionate with another woman, her sister, who just so happened to be a knockout. Like I can see this situation. You can feel, right, for Leah, this dynamic. But we're told, right, that the Lord also saw and was compassionate and opened her womb so that she could bear children while her sister Rachel was barren. That was powerful. But as we read through this text and you can sense and feel Leah's deep emotional longing for Jacob's love, right? Each son, this woman is literally laboring, trying to get the attention of her husband. Four times she has sons, right? 
And with each birth, she's hoping, she's praying that her husband will find love for her, will find some way to cherish her. And with each time from the text, it would appear nothing changes, right? With Reuben, with Simeon, with Levi. It's finally upon the birth of her fourth son, Judah, that Leah makes this declaration. Look at it again. She says, now I will praise the Lord. Now understand there are two ways you can read this. It may be that after bearing Jacob four sons, each in a failed attempt to gain his affection, that Leah had just come to peace with her situation. Like it should be noted that her use in this entire passage of the word, capital L-O-R-D, which was the personal name for God, it indicates that Leah possessed a personal relationship with the Lord. Like there's little doubt that Leah recognized God's presence in her life. Look, she even says, the Lord has looked on my my affliction. She recognized that God saw her and that this statement, quote, the Lord has heard. What does that imply? Has heard what? The prayers of a woman passionately before the Lord, pleading her case. And then the notion, right, I will praise Not only is she aware that God was involved in her life and saw her plight and understood her circumstances, that she wasn't alone, but Leah also was praying. She had this this dialogue. And then when God works, she's a worshiper. She worships the Lord. While it's true that maybe by this point, Leah had just reached this this juncture where she's like, you know what? My love, my affection, my self-worth, my value is not going to be found in that man. It's going to be found in that man, the lover of my soul, that he will be my husband. And maybe she just got to this point where she's like, Jacob, I'm going to do everything I can, but I'm not going to try. Like, I have found peace with the Lord. And that might be the way to read this. But it might also be that the birth of Levi, that that, that between the birth of Levi and Judah, that Jacob's heart may have softened towards Leah. And that she had finally begun to receive love and the affection she had desired. That's the other way you can see this, that something happens. So that by the time she gets this fourth son, she's going on the record. Hey, guess what? I praise the Lord because my husband's loving me now. Then I'm getting attention. I'm getting affection. Though the Bible is unequivocal that Jacob initially loved Rachel more than Leah. I want you to note there is strong scriptural, a strong scriptural case that can be made that over the course of years, Jacob learned to love and appreciate Leah more than Rachel, that Jacob grew to love Leah. Let let me, aside from the evidence of this text, let me just point to, I think, the strongest argument. Jacob is on his deathbed. He's in Egypt, Genesis 49. And Jacob charged his sons, saying this, I am to be buried with my fathers in the cave where they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife, where they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, and note, and where I buried Leah. Not Rachel. Like how interesting that at the very beginning of their relationship, Jacob rolled over and lamented 
finding himself laying next to Leah, only to, at the end of his life, desire nothing more than to be laid next to Leah until the final resurrection. Like in the end, something happens in Jacob's heart. He comes to love Leah and she becomes his beloved. Now, wait a second, Pastor Zach. Are you saying that Jacob should have stayed married to Leah even though he didn't love her? Yes. That is exactly what I'm saying. Like, please understand, because of the theories promoted, the hypotheses peddled like Helen Fisher's, that physical attraction and emotional compatibilities are essential to love. We have developed in our culture this incorrect notion that the key to a successful marriage is finding the right person to marry. That is not true. Then, because sexual desire and chemical feelings that result from the relationship become the primary drivers of love and therefore marriage, we in our culture have tragically overemphasized being in love over the commitment to love. Should there be any surprise that marriages fail when one or both parties say, I'm just no longer in love? I'm bailing. You know why? I'm just not happy at home. I'm just not feeling it anymore. Why should I stay with this woman if I'm not feeling it? Sadly, the problem is you have a warped understanding of love, a warped understanding of marriage, and the truth is you're not loving. That's the problem. Like, please realize this strange love story, and admit it, at the beginning you thought it was about Jacob and Rachel. No, it wasn't. The love story is about Jacob and Leah. And it's a bizarre story. But this story itself, what this tells us about love and marriage, blows contemporary thoughts and concepts out of the water. You see, the key to a, a, a healthy, successful marriage, friend, isn't finding the right person as much as it's making the decision to be the right person. Feeling love isn't nearly as important as making a decision to love till death do you part. Leah loved. And over time, Jacob came to love. <laughs> Beyond that, I believe that this story illustrates a, a much larger reality you might want to consider. And, and, and go with me here. I'm going to kind of use a little license to make a point. In a sense, every person marries two different people. Your spouse. A Rachel or a Leah. A Rich or a Lee. On one side, there is Rachel, who represents the person you love. That part of your spouse, man, gets you going that you are attracted to that very first moment, that person you thought you were marrying, that part that's easy to get along with. But on the flip side, 
everyone also marries Alea, who presents that part of your spouse that was a surprise. Right? Because you were so drunk with love, you were oblivious to that aspect of their personality until one day you rolled over and it was too late. You see, you might say that the ugly was hidden, maybe veiled from view, only to be seen after you got married, after you said, I do. When you finally saw that person for the first time, you might have even thought to yourself, wait a second, I've been tricked. I didn't sign up for that. Where was this person when we were dating? Right? And it's in this moment. The question arises, what do you do with the Leah? Complaining ain't going to change the situation. Self-pity is not going to do any good. As a matter of fact, there really isn't anything that you're going to be able to do to change the ugly. I mean, like Leah, it's just who you are. I mean, no amount of makeup was going to fix that situation. You, you weren't going to hide it. I consider this. What eventually changed Jacob's perspective of Leah? From our text, I think our text tells us. Like, what was it that caused him to love Leah even more than he loved Rachel? You see, the case can be made that Jacob began to love Leah when he saw that the fruitfulness in his life was coming from her and not Rachel. And here's the tough pill you've got to swallow if you want to have a successful marriage. More often than not, God uses the ugly traits in your spouse to force you to grow spiritually. I'm going to read that again. More often than not, God uses the ugly traits in your spouse to force you to grow spiritually. Now, I'm not saying that this is applicable to violence or in the case of cheating or things of that nature. Like what I'm talking about is kind of what we find with Leah. Leah was ugly. That was who she was. That wasn't a sin. It was just this quirk. It was her humanness. See, I'm talking about your spouse's humanness. Leah couldn't change her ugly. She was just that way. You see, so often problems arise in marriage when one, the other, or both parties refuse to love Leah as opposed to choosing to love in spite of Leah or in spite of the ugliness. Like I've heard it said, we can focus on the thorns on the rose, or you can focus on the rose amongst the thorns, but you don't have one without the other. You see, Jacob was able to love. He grew to appreciate Leah when he made a decision to look beyond the ugly and finally appreciate her as God had made her, warts and all. I'm grateful. I don't know about you, friend, but I'm grateful that Jesus has done the same thing with you and I. <laughs> the church, how ugly, right? We are not. We're far from a Rachel. 
where Jesus is Leia. But you know, he loves us in spite of our ugliness. And he's faithful in spite of our ugliness. And he's long-suffering even when we're ugly. See, it should be pointed out that in addition to being the mother of Levi, Leah, and Levi would become the priestly tribe of Israel, no doubt, Leah's spiritual heritage would be passed to the son. Leah's fourth son, notice this, Judah, would grow to become the kingly tribe of Israel and the one in which Jesus would ultimately descend. How so very interesting that the messianic lineage of Christ, that seed, descended not through Rachel, but through Leah. Not only do we see Jesus birthed even in a toxic marriage, not only do we see Jesus birthed in a situation, there's a lot of ugly, but I think the case can once again be made that Jacob should have only been married to Leah. That was God's plan. Friend, let me say it again. Real, genuine, lasting love does not exist as an emotion yielding reactions, but is instead a willful action yielding emotions. I think you can choose to love anyone. The truth is that Jacob, when they got married, had zero physical attraction to Leah. On the surface, they were not compatible at all. And yet, as a result of Leah's decision to love Jacob anyway, over time, Jacob learned to love and appreciate that woman that God had placed in his life. Your spouse, there is a Rachel, but there's also a Leah. And if you'll quit trying to change them, you know, it's been said that the only time a woman really changes a man is when he's an infant. You're not changing your spouse. You're not going to change them. But your job is to love them anyway. And in loving them, you know what I think will be found in the middle of your marriage? A whole lot more of Jesus. And I don't know about you. I say it for me. I know my marriage can always use a whole lot more of Jesus. Amen? So, Father, Lord, it's with that thought we want to just let it marinate.